Welcome to Season 5 of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we talk with enterprise and technology platform leaders about the people, processes, and platforms that make marketing and customer experience successful, scalable, and sustainable. This is what creates an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advisor and consultant for Fortune 1000 marketing and CX leaders and teams as principal and chief strategist at GK5A and best-selling author, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and Agile certified coach. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. To sign up for the Agile Brand newsletter and get the latest insights and articles on marketing technology and CX, or to purchase a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, go to gregkillstrom.com. You can also find all my books on Amazon and other retailers. And now on to the show. Today, we're going to talk about successful design and the process used to get great design results. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Amrita Matur, VP of Marketing at Superside. Amrita, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this with you. Um, first, why don't we get started by you giving a little background on both yourself as well as what you're currently doing at Superside. Sure. Yeah. No, I've uh, been a lifelong marketer. I've been in tech my whole life. I've worked for a number of different type of companies, you know, B2B, kind of done like a lot of quote unquote B2E, you know, selling to enterprise uh, tier one accounts, which is a whole different ballgame. You could spend like uh, a whole year talking about that. that, Yeah, that's Uh, a whole show in itself, right? That's a whole show. Like, how do you sell to Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, you know? Right. and yeah, and I, you know, I, I usually end up working for sort of growth stage companies. So typically that means, you know, a company has gotten some product market fit, they've achieved some level of recurring revenue, and now they're like, okay, now how do we scale this puppy? And so that's usually when they're bringing me in. But Superside was actually a slightly different scenario. It's the earliest stage company I've ever worked for. When I joined them, there was no marketing there was hardly any product. There was some product, but not really, um, no recurring revenue. And so it was just like, okay, we're starting this thing from scratch. We don't really even know what it is. We have some hypotheses and come join us and figure that out. So whole new, whole new challenge. Yeah. So that's, that's me. And Superside's actually a super cool, interesting company. We, you know, in in our core, like what we're really doing is providing design, like actual digital web design to companies all around the world. And the specific place that where we play is in this, what I like to call execution oriented design. So it's not like your entire creative strategy or your brand strategy. It's more like, okay, you're Coca-Cola, you're launching whatever vitamin water in Brazil next year. Great. You need 57 versions of a Facebook ad. You need these billboards. You need this, um, you know, blog post headers, whatever, like all of those bits and pieces that actually bring your content and your offers to life and, and puts the product in front of people, that execution design is where Superside has chosen to play. Um, so we're, we're quite services oriented, but we have an underlying design ops platform that makes this very scalable and efficient. And that's part of our secret sauce. Great, great. Yeah. Well, yeah, so let's, uh, let's get started here talking about 
process of design and how really how successful design is done these days. And so I think probably uh, anybody who's watched the like Mad Men or, or uh, <laughs> things like that have this picture of the the creatives, you know, a couple creatives huddled in a room and coming up with these these grand big ideas and the the big reveal and you know st- stuff like that certainly happens these days, but you know, it, it doesn't work like that to your, to what you're saying about the, the need for scale and, and everything. It does, that's not the only way that creativity works and, and the design works. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing that it doesn't only work that way either. So mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about your approach to creative and design and how may it differ from that, that more traditional approach? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I do think there is a part in the process where, that huddle, as you described it, is necessary, yeah. right? There's, yeah. there's, um, I, I, you know, just using my own marketing sort of go-to-market process. There's a point where you realize, like, I'll, I'll give a real-life example. We're headed into a recession. Everyone's concerned. We don't know what that's going to look like. Yeah. We decided internally to slightly tweak our messaging and run a campaign around that specific message. Once we landed on that, now it's like, okay what do we need to do to actually bring this to life? And does that mean that our visual identity changes in, in, in any way, any significant way? And we all said, no, it's not going to do that. So then it was like, oh, okay, what is what are the specifics that do need to change, particularly again, in that visual way? And that requires that huddle, right? And then you are, I mean, there's no lounge and we're a remote companies so are not sitting around smoking cigars or anything, but <laughs> right. it does require kind of like this unstructured conversation where people are just throwing, you know, for the lack of a better word, like shit at the wall. And yeah. you're trying to like triage through that and think through what makes the most sense. And you have, you know, like usually when we have those kinds of conversations, I go in telling the team, okay, here are some broad guardrails. These are some guardrails. We don't want to go off the deep end, but you kind of want to leave that a little bit loosey-goosey. So there, there, there is need for that from time to time, depending on the context. But once you arrive at the end of that and, and you've made some calls and decisions, then, I mean, I think this is where most companies go wrong is that they don't move into execution mode fast enough, number mm-hmm. one. And number two, I don't think that they clearly articulate what it is that they need to execute. So our, our, our style of how we do things on the marketing creative team here is that we make that decision. We walk away with like a full laundry list. It might change. We, we all agree that, that this is like a starting point and it might change. It might ebb and flow, blah, blah, blah. But we always walk away with a laundry list of like, here are the things that we actually need to produce to bring this to life. And that gives immense clarity to the team. And it actually allows you to do some basic roadmap planning as well. Like, what is the next quarter going to look like? What are some of the things we need to move off? Hey, does this still service the OKRs, the the KPIs, whatever system your company uses, KPIs, OKRs, does it still service those OKRs? And if not, then does that mean that the OKR actually needs to change? Um, yeah. that, that is an integral part that I think a lot of companies don't do well. I, I've been at companies like that where that whole process is super dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, um, that just brings to mind design operations or, or design ops. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to me, that seems like it's certainly it's, it's existed forever because there's always been the need to mechanically create a bunch of, of creative, but I mean, do you see that, that design ops practice, uh, mm-hmm. in, increasing and, in, 
yes. certainly it's important, but yeah. What, what are your thoughts there? Oh my gosh. Design. Okay. I, first of all, for those who don't know, design ops is, you know, if you've worked in tech, you've probably heard of DevOps. Uh, DevOps uh, exists on engineering teams. Some, some teams will just have one or two DevOps people. Sometimes they'll have like an entire separate team. That's a DevOps team. And their whole job is to like work on infrastructure, tooling systems, all of this stuff that allows developers to like, you know, program and code faster and ship faster. The same analogy exists in design. Um, you need a design ops or some companies call it creative ops. You need a creative ops person who's essentially like a project manager, but on crack, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they they're, they're, they're often have design backgrounds themselves. They're often designers themselves, but they're extremely entrenched in the systems and tooling. And they're extremely entrenched in what is the actual strategy and, you know, what is the budget that's available to me? And, you know, sometimes like we have some customers actually that will, they're responsible for figuring out an example is intercom. They're a big customer of ours and, they have four, I believe, four different design ops people on one pod inside the creative team. And all day, every day, they're figuring out, should I, should I outsource this to Superside? Should I outsource this to some other creative agency that they have for like some very specific things? Yeah. Or should we do this in-house? And they have some rules of engagement around that. And then they also do like a lot of budgeting and forecasting. And they do that super fast. And that's like a really important part of their job. Um, so uh, yeah. honestly, my hope, and we've have seen some evidence of this is that this becomes common practice on design teams and creative teams worldwide, no matter the size of the team. Like it's like, it's a given that this role needs to be hired because that just makes you more efficient. And I think this role will also get a lot more defined over time. Cause right now it's like every company is a little bit different. Um, yeah. but we, but we see like signs of you know alignment and and people talking the same language etc um and and this role actually has a lot of power too like i now i've seen on linkedin even tons of people from my network they're like directors and vps of design ops and they're at these like big companies and their teams are like you know 60 to 80 people um so i'm you know i'm happy that the value of this uh function this new function is being recognized yeah, that's great. And let's talk a little bit about experimentation as well. You and your team are often running concurrent experiments, uh, many con- concurrent experiments at once. Um, is mm-hmm. it something that takes others in the company a little while to get comfortable with all the stuff going on, all these potential changes, particularly you know, if, if there's risk averse people in the org? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I will say that we're lucky in that number one, startups naturally have high risk appetite. Yeah. <laughs> and <Fair> given <laughs> that given that we were starting from scratch, you know, three years ago, I think experimentation and following the data was not at all a hard sell. I mean, that we kind of had no choice. That's just how yeah. it needed to be. Um, so generally, no, not at this company. It's really not an issue. I, I think we suffer from the opposite though, because sometimes when there's no clarity, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, let's just run a test. And it's like, can you, you can't really test everything and tests can be run extremely poorly too. This is the yeah. thing with testing. You run a poor test and it gives you either no or basically inconclusive results, or it gives you results that are not actually true and it skews your path forward. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm actually wary of the opposite here, which is 
does this need a test? I always ask myself, does this actually need to be tested or do we generally know? And are we going to be able to get any kind of statistical significance? And again, if the answer is no, I just prefer not to do it. And, you know, generally our team in particular has limited our testing to three buckets. One is around advertising and that where, where we mainly test is actually creative. And I can get into why, why creative is king these days with privacy regulation and um, event tracking and world gardens across all these data platforms. Um, So creative testing on advertising is like our number one big bucket. And we've been able to, oh man, like, if you, if you have time, like I have so much amazing data, it's crazy le- yeah. learnings. <laughs> yeah. So that's the first bucket. The second bucket is like the more obvious one, like just like eking out, you know, half a percent here, 1% there on landing pages. That's really, really important to us. Just yesterday, we concluded a test on a pricing landing page where we were able to get 40 more percent people to not leave the page um, they, and go to some other page. So they were going to exit, but we allowed them through some ingenuity to like continue their journey with Superside, which is actually a huge win. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's an example of a landing page test. And then we also test our messaging very constantly. Part of that is we're not still, I wouldn't call us a super established company. Of course, we've had really great growth, Right. you know, but in some ways we're still like, you know, late stage startup or scale up and we don't know what we don't know. There's probably our hunches that there's probably segments that we haven't found product market fit with yet, but can in the future. So we're constantly testing our messaging. Um, So these are the three sort of spheres where we limit, like we do some very aggressive testing. Everything else is like a little bit more ad hoc and occasional, I would say. Before we continue, I'd like to introduce you to a sponsor of the show, Basecamp. Throughout my career, whether it was at my own agency or now as a consultant, Basecamp is what we rely on to help keep projects on track, on schedule, and on budget. It takes a straightforward approach to project management, it streamlines workflow management, and definitely keeps the team in the loop and on top of ongoing updates, which all are major components in a smooth running operation. No matter if it's a simple campaign or a multi-million dollar project, Basecamp has been a key ingredient in the recipe for a successful project and business. If you're struggling with projects, sign up for Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you all their features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com slash agile, that's Basecamp.com slash A-G-I-L-E, and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel anytime. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get back to the show. You mentioned just constructing experiments in a in a meaningful way, and I, I do think that's really important. I mean, I've been through the the Six Sigma process and mm-hmm. and all that, you know, creating the null hypothesis and and so on and so forth. And I think you know, it's it's one of those things where some of the things seem so simple of, you know, null hypothesis. Okay. You know, let's figure out what, you know, the, the step to get through to determine if this is even going to be a significant test, but, you know, actually going through that process, I find even in, in the agile world, the definition of done, you know, there's these, there are these little things that they sound Mm. so just kind of like, of course, you know, but when you actually have to go through and 
and define these things for, in this case, you know, defining a null hypothesis or something for, for an experiment, it, I think it's valuable because it does really force you to think, okay, well, you know, is this going to be worth it if it's, you know, if it's successful or not, are we going to learn enough from it? So it's, it's good to see that there's some, you know, some rigor with that as well, because to your point, it's, there's a lot of platforms that make experimentation really, really easy to do, but the, 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 the question is really, should we do it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and, you know, I think there's so much magic in the person that's also running the experiment. Like they kind of have to know what to look for. Like you have your yeah. hypothesis, right. And, and sure you're looking to see if that comes true, hope, hope like hell that it does, but right. sometimes you learn other things, but if you're not looking for it, you may not learn that. A while ago, maybe four months ago, we we started produce. We we what we said, hey, we're gonna go all in on YouTube. We're just gonna produce a ton of amazing uh, YouTube videos. And specifically, we said instead of like starting at the top, saying, hey, these are the things we want to be known for, because it's hard to kind of rank for search and blah blah blah. We said, hey, we're only gonna focus on things where there's clear search happening on YouTube already. And there's not that much competition. So that particular white space is where we chose to focus. Um, so that's not an experiment. That's a choice, right? And then we said, hey, we already have these videos that we're producing. They're getting some views. Why don't we just write a blog post around that and insert those videos inside the blog post on our website? Honestly, no one really thought anything of it. We were just like, oh, it's going to be rich content. It's going to be good. And by the way, people would discover a YouTube channel if they happen to land on the blog post. Like we just had all these like loose yeah. hypotheses. And I think after three or four months, we realized that we had an 87% increase in video views from just Google SERPs. Like essentially what was happening is that people were searching whatever, right? Like, oh, advertising design experiments or whatever it is. And then our YouTube video was like popping up in the top, like, you know how Google now yeah. shows like videos sometimes. And, and then like our blog post was like, well below that. Anyway, that whole thing just like blew our mind. And, and we had like a 300% increase in clicks on content with video. And then we had like all of these, you know, things ranking on the first page of Google search results. Like it was just blowing our mind. So that's an accidental success that would happen. And, and you may not even notice it. Like this was big enough that it was yeah. obvious and in our face, but sometimes like little, little things happen. And if you're not looking for it, you'll just miss it and miss out on that learning. Um, yeah. So the person running the experiment, I mean, I, my personal philosophy is that you need to be a subject matter expert in that area. I, I kind of don't like when, you know, in, in the hopes to um, spread the, the workload, sometimes people, you know, leaders will say, Hey, like anyone can run an experiment and, Oh, you're the owner of the Instagram channel. Why don't you run that? And, and I think like some consolidation around who's running the experiment can actually be really helpful because that person grows the muscle for this. It's, it's, it's this like weird skill of like knowing where to look. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just like an organizational design preference. And I've, I've seen some benefit of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's switch gears here a little bit um, and talk about the relationship between marketing teams and, and design teams. So mm -hmm. um, in my career, I've managed both. Um, now, you know, in my, my consulting work, I, I primarily work with marketers who are relying on 
design teams for, you know, for, for critical elements. But, you know, you could say marketing teams are, they're always trying to keep pace with endless numbers of requests and priorities. And, and so for them, you know, design work is often full of, of some kinds of friction. So, you know, they're, it takes too long because the creatives want to do a great job and, and deliver the absolute best quality. Um, and even when they do that, marketing may not think the end result is exactly what they wanted. So there's, yeah. you know, yeah. there's friction at, at many stages of this, you know, and, and that friction itself is even time consuming and, and doesn't always breed the best results. Sometimes totally. it, um, it's, it, it, be, you know, the word, designed by committee is is um, known by anyone who's had to deal with that, yeah. that process. So, you know, first, does this description of this relationship, I mean, does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I am embarrassed to admit that I've definitely been the marketer on the <laughs> side, kind of like, you know, being extremely demanding of a design team, not understanding you know, what they actually need to be successful. We, we actually did a super side did a um, survey last year to all our customers and just a bunch of people in our database. And we got, I think like 2000 responses or something. And we found that like the top five design challenges, according to designers are just kind of like what you outlined, you know, capacity or workload is just like too much to handle. So they're constantly like drowning. Uh, Motivation is hard to kind of keep up, obviously related to that. The organization of files and specifically feedback is lacking. Like how do you get structured feedback is like really like the whole, like that whole loop is like broken. No shared tools to actually get aligned with within their own teams, but also with marketing teams and product teams and whoever else that they're working with. And surprisingly, design leaders themselves felt that the skill sets on their teams weren't varied enough to do the variety of work that was coming their way. Yeah. Which, yeah, which was actually, I mean, it, it's not super surprising in the sense that, yeah, I mean, I, I could see that. I see how people hire, but the surprising part to me was that like the that design leaders were saying this. So it's like, because in my mind, I was like, well, then why don't you just go hire for that? But now <laughs> yeah. I realize that there's other reasons why they can't hire. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing this and just having been through the, the issue, like all of these similar issues myself and being the marketer on the other side, we, we've set ourselves up slightly differently. Mm. So, you know, number one, I think the, the most important thing is like, you got to protect the design team Mm. from just like shit work. Like there's just, everybody needs something or the other, like, you know, HR will be like, Oh, I'm going to this recruiting fair and I need this, whatever, you know, and it's like, yeah, but that's, they're on the marketing team. That's not their job. You, you know, I I think we established those rules very, very early and we very vehemently protected, like what is the scope of their work and what are, what is their responsibility and pro tip for anyone listening, the easiest, dead easy way to do that is to just align everybody on, again on the OKRs. So yeah. if your creative team is part of the larger marketing org, what is the marketing OKR? Everybody is laddered up and cascaded to that. And any other work, frankly, or any other priorities outside of that OKR are not anyone's priority. So you can easily say, say no. OKRs give you permission to say no. So when like HR walks up to you, you can be like, no, I, I can literally say this is not, not a priority. Right, right. Um, nice. So yeah, protecting, protecting that team and, 
ensuring that their scope is like properly understood by everybody in the company is important. We did that very early. I'd say like there's another interesting thing that we've done, which ironically I should have done many, many years ago. It's it's this idea of, so the way we've organized our creative team is that there's sort of like three or four different factions inside it, like these different pods, if you will. And every pod is aligned to another marketing pod. So for example, our video team that lives inside the creative team and, you know, they're they're mainly aligned with uh, two pods. One is our content marketing pod that's focused on YouTube and TikTok in particular, um, because they're both video channels and also with advertising. So our paid media team, our performance marketing team, they do a ton of like little short form video that they run experiments with and all of their OKRs are the same. So they're shared and they all go to the same meetings. So the feedback loop is actually real time. Any data that the performance marketing team has, for example, the video pod also has. They may not fully invest like the hours or whatever to understand it to a very, very deep level, but they have access to that data. They see it as real time as the performance marketing team does. And anytime we do a meeting where the uh, learnings are distilled down, they are absolutely part of that. Sometimes even presenting that and, and, um, and figuring out next steps right after that. So they're, they're essentially like one one team. Um, Just the reporting relationships happen to be different, but they have the same goals. They have the same OKRs. They all go to the same meetings. I think Mm -hmm. that tight alignment has really, really helped. And it's it's, uh, created a lot of goodwill, amazing motivation from the creative and design team. And it's actually allowed our performance marketing and content teams to not feel, quote unquote, alone. You know, sometimes they feel like they're carrying the bag and it's like, if it doesn't go well, it's all on them. And it's like the results are all on them. But now they feel like they've got like a quarterback or two, you know, to help them out um, and think through some of and, you know, ideate and think through um, what else they could be trying and what the next experiment could look like. So, so yeah, that is like a key you know, maybe, maybe this is like too nuanced, but that was like a very key change we made. And, and the same, we've done the same across other pods. We've got a design and illustration pod. We've got a web and UI pod. And, and those designers work very closely with the website team and their, and the CRO team and all of this stuff. So yeah. huge, I, I think just like huge advancement there. And I would encourage anybody who's setting up a marketing team from scratch to kind of think about you know, creating that tight alignment from day one. And the second thing I'd say is this has been talked about a lot and I've heard a bunch of podcasts even talk about this, but it's like this idea of like this very, very simple idea of real-time result sharing. Yeah. I think, I, I, I think people have taken it to like a level where now they're just dumping data on top yeah. of creative people yeah. and expecting them to like figure that out on their own. And that's highly unfair. So, you know, one of the, and this goes back to the tight alignment point that I was making. One of the, one of the things that we've chosen to do is every month we do this like fairly intense, uh, we just call it like the end of month marketing meeting and all of the program owners are standing up and number one showing, Hey, here's what we tried or here's what we did here were the results in like an understandable way. Like don't show me spreadsheets of, you know, numbers. And what we actually do is 
not only do shout outs like, hey, thanks, you know, someone will say thanks so and so for coming up with this idea for this, you know, video ad we did or whatever it is. Um, so like doing those shout outs, but then also like the entire team tries to present together. So it's not just like one person standing up. It's a forcing function to get everybody to prep for that meeting, um, understand what's being presented, understand what's being discussed. And that's actually been really great. And, you know, really, even though we're a tech company, we're, we try to keep things very, very simple, low jargon, um, don't show us spreadsheets of data and, you know, keep keep the communication um, high. Yeah. So that's uh, that type of real time result sharing and the end of month sort of almost like retrospective style session has been uh, a big step forward as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great great stuff and, and great advice on on the the team structure and, and things like that as well well one one last question before we wrap up here um you you touched a little bit on this at the start of the show you joined superside uh, a little bit earlier stage than than you were used to in in your career and uh you know it, when you joined there was no product no platform no recurring revenue uh, really kind of uh you know getting things off the ground What's your approach in the in a situation like that? You know, how how did you approach really, you know, needing to get things really launched almost, you know, from from scratch? And um, you know, what what would be your advice there to someone that might be in that situation? Yeah, I I mean, I was kind of doing this for the first time, so you know, I'm not sure if I quite went about it the right way, but sure. the the first thing we all agreed on was we all had hunches for who, you know, who our customer would be, who our future customer would be. So, you know, I remember running a workshop around this and just getting everybody's, you know, the small team, like very tight, closely knit team. So it was like the three founders and a couple other people that were new hires, just like all of us getting in a room and like we had like an all day workshop and we ran through some of that stuff. And we developed this like pretty robust hypothesis. And then I said, okay, great. I'm going to test this in a qualitative way. And I literally set up 50, I think I did 57 interviews in the span of like maybe two weeks. Wow. Just anybody that would talk to me that kind of looked and smelled like a potential customer. I just wanted to talk to and validate that. And through that learned a couple of key things learned uh, who was certainly not going to be a customer in the future, who might be a customer, but could be hard to win over. And so maybe they're not the first set of people that we go after. And really that was like the start of our, you know, now we have like very robust buyer personas. We understand them really well and what their, you know, pain points are, their selfish desires, et cetera. But this is, this was like the earliest rendition of that. So we, we very early knew, okay, here are like the eight rough buyer personas. These are the two or three that look good, that have like, you know, this like really hardcore pain that we can solve. Here are some of the talking points, et cetera. And then, yeah. And then we just started running experiments. The easiest, fastest experiment to run was actually on Facebook and Instagram. So we, we just set up a bunch of landing pages. We'd already figured out some of our like very basic positioning and had like, I don't know, like a seven or eight page website up and running. And then we just started running ads to learn very, very quickly because we wanted to, we, we basically wanted to ship stuff and like have conversations and like learn every single week. That's the cadence that we set up for ourselves. So we were just like, how do we get 
high quality conversations happening, like actual legit, almost like sales conversations. So we started actually with paid media focused on Facebook and Instagram, um, got a ton of leads from Instagram, just literally like just talked to every single person. And I think, so we launched, I joined in May of 2019. We launched in September and I think by January, yeah, like in four or five months, we had tons of data. We had tons of paying subscription customers. Many of them were not good customers. We ended up, either they left or we ended up firing them later, but that was good yeah. learning. <laughs> and we were already tracking like where the retention curves were good and where they weren't. And I think like what really helped us there was like the speed aspect, like the, the fact that we just like committed to ourselves that everything we're going to do is not, doesn't have to work out. It may not work out long-term. That's okay. But it's, we're optimizing for learning first and foremost, speed of learning. Yeah. yeah. That's actually like almost like a metric, you know, it's like a qualitative metric that a lot of startups have started using. And I, and I really like it. That's great. Well, Amrita, thanks so much for joining the show. For those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. So Superside is pretty big on Instagram. Easy to find us. Just search for us there. And then I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can just search for my name, Amrita Mather. And yeah, you can you can be subject to my rants there. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Amrita Mather, VP of Marketing at Superside for joining the show. Talk with you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkilstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. To get a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, visit my website or you can find it on Amazon or other retailers. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile.